Hello, David. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. How are you? Doing pretty good. On vacation, so, you know, not a bad way to be spending your time. Yeah, I know. Again, we, we really appreciate you you spending the time uh, on this, especially while, while on vacation. It's, it's very My pleasure. You, you're passionate about authorization. We, we, we can say that at least. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So we we are again, we just started the the new space because we we kind of like close the old one, so it might be a bit slow until a few people join. Um, but again, we, we're still going to be doing the recording as we usually do, uh, and people yep. might come in as as we do this. So let's let's get started. Um, it's great to have you here. You, you've been uh, doing things in the IAM industry with authorization for a while. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, yourself, your career, and, and also what you what you do today? Sure. So, I actually started working in the authorization space back in 2004 when I was an intern um, at British Telecom back in the UK. And um, at, at the time, I didn't really know a lot about security at all. I, I didn't know what cybersecurity included or what authentication or authorization was. Um, as chance would have it, I, I ended up working on a project Back in 2004, it was the heyday of, um, you know, SOAP, um, WSR, API security. Before it was called API, it was called uh, SOA security, actually, uh, service-oriented architecture. And so we were working on all these new standards like SAML and ZACML and WS security, WS trust, WS federation, which, which I know is one of Vittorio's favorite standards. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, a few years into that, I joined a, a startup called Axiomatics who were focusing... Um, on fine-grained authorization using technologies like um, ZACMOL and Alpha. And then 10 years later, um, a great ride, had a lot of fun. I, I kind of decided to switch gears and move on from authorization to go to the authentication space, which is what I'm doing today at Salesforce. So that's me in a nutshell. That's great. And, and you kind of like uh, gave us a fire hose of, of interesting things to, to talk about, right? We talk, you talked about SAML, ZACMOL. We talked about like the early days of, of axiomatics, fine-grained authorization, alpha. So that's that's fantastic. Let's kind of like take this uh, step by step, and, and maybe for for people that are listening, what is authorization? How do you define it compared to authentication, which is what you're doing today? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, it, oftentimes, people when they hear the word authorization, they they think of authentication because when you when you when you, you go online and you try to put in a username and password you're trying to authenticate and if you fail you get the answer unauthorized um i like to go back and define both authentication and authorization so authentication in the broadest sense would be proving something about your of birth, you know, independently of my actual identity. So, you know, if I walk into a bar and I want to drink, I have to be one or depending on the jurisdiction, I have to be 21 or 18 or so on and so forth. So that's actually proving that claim. It's not really proving my identity. So that's authentication. Authorization is determining what it is you can do. Uh, more broadly, what an item or a, 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 a subject, if you will, it doesn't have to be human, of course, what, what a subject, an entity can do on another entity. That's what authorization is, determining whether that should be allowed or not allowed. Um, so it's a mixture of the identity information. It's a mixture of additional attributes of that identity. It's a mixture of the action that entity wants to do. It's a mixture of 
what the targeted resource or the targeted entity is, and potentially also relationships between the entity doing the action and the entity um, uh, being targeted, if you will. I see that that makes sense. So it, it seems like just knowing who you are in, in kind of like an, an isolated context is more an identity and authentication question. And then once you need to start interacting with, with the system, that's where you get these things called the subject and, and the resource and there's kind of like an action or the target on, on those uh, entities. So yep. basically this is, hey, can, can this subject uh, do this thing on this resource or, or this entity? That's kind of like the, the typical way in which uh, people might think about authorization compared with authentication, which is like, who am I, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you take a banking application, right, you you go to um, uh, yourbank.com, you log into the bank. So the first step is authenticating into the bank. And of course, in the realm of authentication, there's lots and lots of things to to investigate. You know, do you want to do strong authentication? Do you want to do multi-factor authentication? So there's lots of things about authentication. But once you're in, once you're past that first front door where we, we checked who you are, we've got a pretty good assurance level or assurance of, of who you are, then you can start doing things within the app or within the domain, within the bank. Okay, great. So you logged in. Are you a customer? Are you an employee? Um, are you a gold customer or um, a platinum customer? Um, what do you own? Do you own bank accounts? Do you have a loan? Which loan? And what actions can you do on, on that loan or that bank account? So absolutely, authorization is kind of like the, the step that happens after you've walked through that first door. That's, that's great. And, and one thing you, you're mentioning, uh, which might be unfamiliar to, to some of the listeners, is the, the term subject, right? Um, yep. People might immediately think, okay, I'm a user. Why, why are we saying subject rather than user? I think it's just, maybe I'm a little biased, but in, in the ABAC world, which is one of the, you know, one of the, the ways you can do authorization. So ABAC is attribute-based access control. Uh, we tend to talk about subjects, but a, a subject is is at the end of the day user of course it doesn't have to be a human user it could be a machine it could be something else it's kind of the yeah. same it's 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 the actor essentially right yeah exactly and that's kind of like one of the things that like we we talk about a lot like at, at zero we have like this kind of like machine to machine offering right like there might not be a user there's a worker and it's acting as a right. subject but it's not necessarily like again representing a human person or even on behalf of, of a human right that's yep. great um so like, now we're, we're talking about authorization. You mentioned again, like axiomatics, you mentioned all, all of these standards. Let's kind of like step back. I'm a developer. A lot of our listeners are, are developers. Why should I care about authorization as a developer? Like, can't I just have if statements in my code that check if the user can do something with an, act, with a, with an entity or with a resource? Yeah, that's a good question. And historically, everything was in code, and a lot of it is still in code, right? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons why you want to try to decouple your application code from the authorization logic, from the authorization code, and why you shouldn't be doing if-else statements. Um, one of the reasons is just efficiency. You want to be able to write a lot of code. You're not great at security because an app developer should not have to be good at security. They should be able to delegate security um, to others. So much like you're going to be delegating encryption to encryption libraries or authentication to authentication libraries like Auth0, 
then you should also be able to delegate authorization to an authorization library that can do, and I'm seeing the word library in the broad sense, right? Framework, whatever you want to call it, or service. You should be able to delegate authorization to that service because it's going to be done in a, in a better way, in a better quality, and it's going to save you time. That's kind of the number one reason. The second reason is you want it to be configurable. When you write an app, you get requirements from the business. But the authorization requirements are not always expressed correctly, and they can evolve very quickly. Some of the authorization requirements might come from the business. Others might come from um, compliance or legal. And if a new role came in, take my banking example again. If there was a new role that said, oh, well, um, if your bank account happens to be in, I don't know, at random, Luxembourg, you need to be able to you can only do certain things, right? So that's a new authorization rule. You can't deposit money in Luxembourg if you're logging from outside of Luxembourg. Just random, stupid example. Well, if you had not used an externalized authorization framework or configurable authorization framework, then you would have to rewrite your app. That's very expensive. So you want authorization to be configurable, okay? There's a third item that kind of mixes with the second item. Um, I did say there were two originally, but I guess there's always a third item, and that's... Um, compliance um, and visibility. Sometimes you'll be working in an industry where you need to prove that your application is in conformance or in compliance with different pieces of legislations. If you wrote authorization in code, it's much harder to prove that compliance. I, in my previous life, I had customers come up to me and say, well, we literally take screenshots of the C++ code of the given application and we share it with the audit <laughs> team so that the audit team, compliance team, know that we're doing the right thing. And that, of course, is not great, right? That's, that's great. So basically, like, again, you mentioned three things. You mentioned the fact that, again, like this last one, I, I don't need to go through all of, all of the ifs in my code yeah. to be able to figure out who should have access to what. Uh, there's this notion of like, being able to review this easily, uh, and at the same time, uh, make sure that like you know who kind of like approves changes, right? Like there's there's this requirement around, hey, not all of your changes might be from your product team. Some of them might be from compliance or from other parts of the business, and, and you need to make sure that that you track all of those. Um, yep. One of the things that's that's also kind of like a, a big thing, especially around compliance, is like the notion of like. Um, auditing and, and knowing like who did what and when. How do you think about auditing in, in the context of authorization? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point, um, Damien, because in the historical way of doing authorization, if you did it in code, you don't really have a good chance to do auditing. There's actually two types of auditing you could think of. There's auditing of what actually happened, so what access was granted, and there's the auditing of what could possibly happen or could possibly have happened. So let's take back my, my banking example. Um, maybe the uh, compliance team at the bank wants to verify what customer um, Joe has been doing. If you have not implemented yourself that functionality in the app, and if you do authorization built into the app code, then you're in trouble. You don't have any traces. If, however, you had actually externalized authorization into an authorization framework or service or library, then that library should give you logs of what access was granted or what access was denied. It's not necessarily granted, by the way. And that can be used by the audit team to determine that Joe did access their bank account at 3 a.m. from Luxembourg and did withdraw 3,000 euros or, or whatever it might be. So that's the audit of what did happen. The other one is the audit of what could happen. 
that's interesting when you want to know um, essentially whether the the authorization you've defined, I was going to say the word policy, but I'm going to try to steer away from specific implementation choices. But um, you want to make sure that the authorization you put in place actually corresponds to the original requirements. So you want to ask things like, okay, um, what if my user was trying to move money from A to B? Could they do that? If the answer is yes, then then there's there's actually an authorization way. Or you could ask broader questions like, tell me what Alice can do or tell me what Joe can do to reuse my user. So these are the audit of what can potentially or could have happened. And that's also a very interesting item to keep in, um, keep track of. Okay, that's that's great. Um, so now, now you, started, you started to kind of like reframe for mentioning the word policy. Uh, so let's, let's kind <laughs> of like start leading into that. Um, what are the ways in which you can express authorization? Let's call them the, like the authorization model. Uh, ca can you kind of like do a, a historical recap for, for Lofas? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, there's essentially three major frameworks out there, uh, or three major models, I should say, to be more specific. Um, the first one is ACLs, Access Control Lists. It, it dates back to file systems, to, to Unix systems. It's so probably way before the 70s. I don't quite remember when. And uh, it's mainly um, the, the the most I guess the most common access control mechanism where you can you can choose what files can be accessed by whom, right? So um, this is also where you have the notion of mandatory access control that kicks in and discretionary access control that that kicks in that can be implemented through ACLs. Uh, but then if you fast forward to the '90s, um, in particular in 1992, um, a couple individuals from NIST, the National Institute of um, Standards and Technology, got together and said, well, access control lists, are, they're, they're fine, they're great, everyone understands them, they're extremely fine-grained, by the way, but man, they're hard to manage. Um, they're really hard to set, they're really hard to audit, it's, it's, it's a real pain, it doesn't scale well, so we need something that scales better. And they came up with a model called RBAC, or Role-Based Access Control. And RBAC is kind of a natural thing um, for us to understand because role-based role access control is, is based entirely on identity on who you are. It's also based on usually a hierarchy of roles and groups and what you belong to. So it kind of corresponds to the way our society is organized, right? There's, there's a, a leader or a CEO and below that there's um, um, you know executives and below that there's managers and below that there's um, individual contributors. So it's a model that we understand really well. Our back is um, pretty good. It scales better from a management perspective than access control lists. Um, it's a great step towards the, the next step. But even with RBAC, when you want to do more specific authorization, when you want to do business-driven authorization, then you end up having to write code um, if you want to be more fine-grained. And that's where ABAC comes into play. So ABAC is attribute-based access control, also more or less defined by the same folks at the National Institute of, um, of um, Standards and Technology, NIST, um, in, in ABAC, it's, it's, it's a generalization of the fact that it's not just about roles, but actually it's about attributes. And attributes could be, they're essentially key value pairs, right? And it could be about anyone, anything. They could be about a user. They could be about an action. They could be about a resource. It's acknowledging the fact that not everything is a hierarchy. Not everything is a role. Not everything is a group. And that roles and groups are okay as a basis for authorization, but they're not enough. There's also another aspect RBAC is what I'm going to call static authorization. 
I know that if you Google RBAC dynamic authorization, you'll find things because there's ways to do dynamic authorization with RBAC, but really RBAC is static. It's permissions that are granted to you at birth time. Notice, by the way, I said permission. So permission is something that you know exists in RBAC. You're going to assign a role to a permission or a group of permissions. But it's static, right? Um, you're, you're born with a set of, of permissions and until someone assigns you a new set of permissions or removes uh, permissions from you, you're going to be able to do whatever your role in your group gives you. ABAC is a little more subtle because it uses a, a, a broader range of attributes, which could be, you know, your date of birth. It could be a role, of course. It could be a group, of course. But it could also be um, a data about the item you're trying to get access to. Say, my banking example, it could be that there's a, in ABAC, there's a role that says, or a policy that says, um, I can view the bank account I own. So you see there is no role here. It's just an identity, I um, and then an action view, and then the relationship between the bank account and myself. I'm the owner of the bank account. But it could be an indirect relationship. It could be something like, um, I can view the bank account of my daughter. She's a minor. I can see it. Um, so in that case, we're introducing new attributes. The, the notion that I have a daughter or a child or I'm the legal guardian for another person. And the notion of ownership of that bank account. So that's essentially what ABAC brings to the mix. Now, I've heard other terms like PBAC, policy-based access control. It's pretty much the same as PBAC. Um, it's just that when you say PBAC, you kind of highlight the fact that in the AVAC world or the PBAC world, there's policies that tie these attributes together. But AVAC and PBAC are pretty much the same thing. Okay. Okay. So kind of like the, the quick recap would be we, we start with the ACLs, the typical Unix access control list. Uh, a specific user can do this specific thing on, on this specific file. But there's no kind of like yep. meta reason why that can happen. They can do it because they can. Now, kind of like the, the next step Correct. to simplify management becomes role-based access control. They can do Correct. things. Users can do things because they, are, they have a particular role and that role somehow is assigned to them. And now we, and then kind of like we have ABAC, which is, well, rather than just considering one thing, their role about a user, what if we consider user things, user attributes, but also attributes about the context of the request, maybe like the time of day, and also things about the objects in the system that are, you're interacting with. So you're, you're kind of like going from like extremely simple in terms of like explaining why someone has access to kind of like more complex sort of rules. And that's kind of like where, where the word policy comes in. Does that make sense? Correct. Absolutely. Um, you're spot on. Okay, and um, so like let's let's kind of like dive through these things a bit. Uh, like it seems so a ACLs are, are relatively easy to understand. Like this user can do this specific thing on on, on this particular resource. It, it doesn't scale because it's it's hard to manage, right? You have lots of resources, and, and it's hard to figure out what a user can do. Now, how how is this like? Uh, you mentioned RVAC, and and it's it's very kind of like identity centric. How are identity and authorization related? And, and, and especially, again, you've worked it out with protocols. Um, how do those kind of like tie in together? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So um, identity protocols, things like SAML and, and OAuth and OpenID Connect, um, they tend to worry more about establishing the identity of the user. And, and of course, I'm forgetting other protocols in, in the mix, you know, things like Skim and even LDAP, if you want to go... Uh, that far back, they, they tend to focus on the establishment of a user identity or the federation of a user identity in the case of, of SAML, right? Um, and that's great because now we know who you are. And as a result of these standards, 
and these flows, you end up with a lot of information about the user. It's not just that they are who they say they are, but you have potentially claims, right? And if you look in the OAuth world, there is a whole slew of claims that have been defined that describe the user. If you look in the OpenID Connect world, there's a notion of an ID token that, that, that might contain information about the user, or there's a notion of a user info endpoint that might actually contain um, attributes about the user. They're not called attributes in, in OpenID speak, but they're quite literally attributes that can be used. Um, in SAML, you can have assertions inside of a SAML token that can describe what the user can or can't do. So there's actually ways in identity standards to provide slightly better authorization. So, you know, we'll talk about coarse-grained authorization, fine-grained authorization, and the stories that RBAC is coarse, ABAC is fine-grained. Um, identity standards like SAML, like, like OpenID Connect, because they can carry um, assertions or they can carry claims, they can actually make semi-coarse-grained authorization, if you will, like trying to meet in the middle. And what's interesting is you can mix that with authorization standards, um, things like Zach Mole, Alpha, Open Policy Agent, uh, or Rego, I should say, the, the, the language, because yep. these attribute-based access control languages, they can literally consume these claims, consume these assertions, consume these, um, these attributes that come from the identity la layer so that you can make um, smarter decisions. Okay, so we, we're going from, I have all of, all of my authorization logic in my code. I had if statements all around... Uh, <laughs> The, the code base, I, I was querying the database. Now I, I'm kind of like advancing and I'm starting to say, hey, what, what if I kind of like cut this at the edges of, of this application, kind of like a typical yep. cross-cutting concern? I might be able to make authorization decisions based on someone's role uh, and that might come in one of these assertions or, or one of these claims in the token. I might mm -hmm. also be able to make it on more than, more than those things if, if I go towards like the ABAC model. Uh, what are the, the limitations of doing identity-centric authorization? Wh where will I hit a wall? Yeah, so typically the line that I draw is whenever there's a relationship, it's going to be hard to do it in identity-centric standards. And what I call a relationship is, is the example. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a, another banking example. Um, I'm an employee at a bank, at a branch. And therefore, um, um, there's a, a basic policy, human policy, that says uh, bank employees can only work on, work on, edit, view, whatever, customer data from the same branch. Okay? Yep. That's a basic human policy. It might be for compliance reasons. It might be for customer preference reasons. Whatever the reason might be, someone within the bank at corporate sector Oh, sorry. I think I accidentally muted everyone. Can you unmute, David? One sec. Yeah, can you hear me? I was yeah, unmuted. Sorry about that. Yeah, that, the, <laughs> no I was worries. trying to mute myself. That's, you know, my family tries to mute me all the time, so I know, I know the feeling. Um, so it, it, what I was saying is, so the, the human policy is um, you can only view data from the same branch. And by the way, you can only view it from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And, and to make it even more specific, you can only view it from a corporate device. So there's a few things that uh, identity-centric authorization can't really tackle. Number one, the relationship. The relationship between the employee and the data it goes through the branch. It's an indirect relationship, but we do have to check that employee branch is equal to 
data branch or a customer account branch to be more specific. And you have to think about things like, well, maybe the employee is working in multiple branches. So I need to compare that the customer is in at least one of the branches uh, that the employee is assigned to. Okay, That's not something identity-centric authorization can do. And then the dynamic parts I mentioned, the time dimension and the, um, the uh, geographical dimension or the, the, the corporate device dimension, these are things that identity-centric authorization can't really tackle. Remember what I said earlier, I, I said that identity-centric authorization and RBAC, role-based access control, they tend to be birth time authorization, meaning that we grant you the permissions that you can have when your user is created or updated, but it's, it's way before you use the application. It's way before you actually get access to the data, right? So um, the... Yeah, the, um, we, we, we need to be able to infer all, all possible authorization scenarios from just looking at the user data. And that's not something that happens either when the, the context changes, again, time of day or geography, or when the, the relation with the object or something else changes because you don't know how it's going to be used. And, and you would have to Correct. kind of like basically explicitly Correct. state all possibilities beforehand, which is not that trivial. Correct. And so when you need to look at additional parameters like time, like relationships, um, like like um, geographical information, there's there's only really two ways to um, to skin the cat. Either you do it in code yourself, or you express it in an authorization framework, an attribute based access control authorization framework that'll give you the flexibility. Okay, and and how how does the statement you you said earlier, I think, was around something like like role based access control generally is about like more coarse grain authorization. You can do some semi-fine-grain authorization, but not quite, whereas like AVAC gets you kind of like towards that finer-grain control. Can you talk a bit about, like, first of all, these kind of like fairly relative terms, coarse and fine, and also uh, why that's important and, and what do you mean by them? Sure. So coarse-grain authorization is, is really about defining basic access to things. So it's what you define through uh, the assignment of a role or a group or a permission, and it, it gives you access to a whole slew of things. Fine-grained authorization is when you can uh, define a policy or a rule that will give you specific access. And when I say specific access, I mean it can go all the way down to the actual action that you want to do on the item um, to, um, to that item, and it could be based on multiple parameters, um, multiple attributes of that item. Okay, so so this is mostly about like the the scope on which you can act. Seems like like maybe if if you consider a typical mm -hmm. SaaS application, you might have a role for an entire organization, or maybe a more technical ten term like tenant. You are either maybe an admin or a writer or a developer, something like that. But when you get into the hey, I I want to do authorization at the level where some users based on some criteria can change this particular field on the database, that, then that's kind of like clearly more fine grain. And that's kind of like that spectrum, yep. which is relative, but at the same time, uh, considering the software out there, it's, it's kind of like fairly differentiated. Correct. And actually, you make me think that there's, there's two aspects to fine grain authorization. One aspect is how fine grain the policy can be. And in ABAC, there's no limit, right? The policy can be super fine grain. But there's another dimension, which is the enforcement you have to be able to enforce at the level that will give you the granularity of, en of enforcement. So, so what I mean by that is, if you wanted to be able to do fine-grain access 
on a UI. So you're building a web page and you want to control buttons on that web page. Having enforcement in a, in a proxy or, or a web application firewall is not good enough because it's not going to give you, it's going to be really hard to manipulate the HTML to, to hide or show widgets. So you have to have enforcement within the web framework. So you, it's, it's always two things. Fine-grained authorization is always, on the one hand, the policy and, and the, the fine-grained nature of the authorization, work, authorization framework you use, but also the enforcement of that authorization. That's actually something, yeah. you know, if you want to compare RBAC and ABAC, enforcement is handled by the app. So if you do RBAC, you don't, you don't really have to worry about enforcement. It's done for you, or it's up to the developer, really. In ABAC, you need a framework to do it for you. You need to have what we, what we call enforcement points or interceptors. Yeah, and, and there's a, a very interesting uh, talk about, uh, we talked about this topic with some of the folks from Slack that do uh, deal with authorization. And one of the things that they do is essentially, they make some authorization decisions on the Slack app, in either the front end or their phone, mm -hmm. mostly to decide what to display. But because it's a front end, you can't essentially delegate a decision all the way to a web page you, you're not controlling. So they do the enforcement of these uh, policies, of these kind of like business rules on their backend and on, on their APIs. Yep. So ha, ha, the, again, we, we keep using the word policy. We talked about XACML, we talked about Rigo, we talked about Alpha. Let's talk about policies. What's a policy? Uh, what, what policy languages and, and runtimes are there? Can you give us kind of like the lay of the land? Sure. I mean, uh, um, the baseline, if you will, a policy is just a plain old English policy. You might hear the word role, R-U-E-L, um, R-U-L-E. I'm sorry, I don't know how to spell anymore. Um, it's, it's, late. As well. it's late in France. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so policy and role are, are just the same thing, right? A policy is a statement that says what can or what can't happen, right? Policy, and that's interesting. That's another difference between RBAC and ABAC. RBAC can't be negative. ABAC can. So a policy will say a given user can do a given um, set of actions on a given set of items. So an employee can view a bank account in the same branch between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. That's an example of a policy. And notice that this is a plain old English policy. It is not a technical policy. It's written by the, um, the business stakeholders who get to define what can happen. I could have also said, by the way, if you are in an export-controlled country, then you cannot see any bank account, period. So that's an example of a negative policy that can get added to the first policy, okay? The whole notion of, of, um, of policies is not necessarily that new. If you look at network access control, there was the notion of policies way back when. Um, if you look at, at systems like um, um, Windows SDDL, there is something almost similar to, to what a policy is. So SDDL is, is Microsoft's um, attempt at ABAC in, in Windows Server. Um, and of course, if you look at standards, you have things like um, XCML, Zackbull, goes all the way back to 2001. You have Alpha, which is a simplified version of XACML. That's JSON-like. Um, you have Open Policy Agent. So it's not actually Open Policy Agent. That's the framework. The language is called Rego, R-E-G-O. Um, and, and earlier today, I was talking with colleagues, and there's additional languages that are popping up left and right. So it's, it's actually a very, very dynamic field. And I'm still catching up with the other languages. But at the end of the day, what they do is use key-value pairs brought together to determine whether, yes, access should be permitted or access should be denied. Okay, okay. I, I see what you mean. So essentially, again, like when, when we think about policies, we, we're thinking about like the, the rules are defined 
what should happen when a particular subject wants to perform an action on, on one of like yep. these again entities or objects, and yep. then there are ways of expressing that that go all, all the way from like you know quote plain English, and and there might be kind of like uh, DSLs to translate that into something like again this XML or XML based um, definition for these policies. There's there's kind of like these new languages like Rigo, like the, there's another one called uh, Polar. I think there's like a exactly. library called Casting. I, 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 yeah. Yep, Polar is the one that was that came up in conversation today. Thanks for bringing it up. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things I am thinking about, that like as you speak, is like, and and maybe maybe this is not a good way of thinking about it. Could, could we could we think of like Arbac as a specific instance of Abac, where what I'm checking is just the like user dot role attribute or something like that? Mm, I don't really agree. Um, you can definitely do RBAC with ABAC, but the frameworks are a little different um, in that ABAC implies, typically implies runtime authorization checks. It typically implies that you do have a policy that dictates what can happen. Um, it does imply that you have more flexibility and more visibility. RBAC, to some extent, it's it's just identity derived, and and what what you know when you, when you give a user, take an example, right? Um, so I'm I'm at Salesforce. So when you create a user within Sales, the CRM tool, I can give them the role of CEO. I can also give them a profile, but what that role means, what the profile means, all depends on other configuration within the app, and this is all very obscure, opaque, right? Because it's all parts of code that was written within the Salesforce app, if you will. Um, but it's really hard to be able to extract it and audit it or, 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 or just yank it. Whereas with an ABAC system, with a true ABAC system, you would be more easily able to, to look at the policy, analyze the policy, understand what it does. Okay, that, that makes sense. And I really like that you said no. It's, I love it when that happens. And and especially because like people might might go in that direction, right? And, and especially if you read like the, the NIST guidelines, the frameworks, as you're saying, for AVAC and, and RVAC are extremely different. And the, the degree of flexibility that a general AVAC implementation implies is fairly, I wouldn't say necessarily complex, but like it, you need to be very flexible. Or like with RVAC, most of the, both those requirements kind of like are gone, so to speak. Um, yeah. but but to your yeah, point, though, yeah, you, you can you can definitely do RBAC authorization in ABAC frameworks. And also, you don't necessarily have to use ABAC. Not everyone needs ABAC. I mean, if I take um, a very identity-centric uh, use case, RBAC might be plenty enough. Okay, so that's that's a good kind of like uh, a good segue into, into my next question, which is, Okay, we were talking about fine-grained authorization. We were talking about, hey, in these cases, where there are like relationships, where there's dynamic context, which might be time, place-based, for example. Uh, it might also be like about other things, but like those are clear examples. You might need this this notion of ABAC. What's the kind of like the the other part of that? What, what's the typical architecture, or what are the typical requirements that you would expect to see in an ABAC solution? So from, from a business use case, as soon as, it, it can, always kind of goes back to the same thing, right? If you have a relationship, if you have a need to express authorization based off of a relationship, or if you need 
great visibility into the authorization framework and um, the ability to audit it, the ability to do access reviews and the ability to configure it, then you probably need a back. But the biggest requirement is if you have a, well, two things, if you have a relationship and if you have dynamic aspects that cannot be addressed through RBAC. So going back to my banking example, if I want to be able to do authorization based off of um, the branch, right? If this was an RBAC model, I would have to define a role, employee branch one, employee branch two, employee branch three. And you can see how that's not going to scale because if I have 10 branches, it's okay. But if I have 100 branches because I'm expanding, it's not okay because I end up with 100 roles, which is known as role explosion. So that's a typical requirement that it's like a warning bell. You know, it, to me, it, it tells me go A back. But if you had things like time or location um, based access control, it's also an indication that you want to do um, A back. If you have requirements to have an audit trail of all the access that was granted or denied, it's another reason you want to go down the path of A back. Because with R back, given the access is done within the code of the application, then you don't really know what access was granted or denied, or rather you have to look through application logs to figure out what was granted or denied. That makes sense. And so what are the, the components that the typical ABAC architecture requires or, or recommends to do this? We, we talked about some terms earlier and, and we were, I would say, uh, purposefully vague, but we talked about enforcement, mm -hmm. we talked about like, decision-making, we, we kind of like talk about like policy offering. So, can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, for sure. So in, in RBAC, the components, of course, are, they're all baked into the system, right? In ABAC, they're kind of decoupled. And the terms are not ABAC specific. They actually predate ABAC. They were used in other things like um, um, network access control again. But the typical architecture components are what I call the P's, right? So you have the PAP, which is the policy administration or the policy authoring points. That's where you would manage your policies, okay? Uh, then you have the PDP, which is the policy decision point. This is where you make the where you do the decision making. It's essentially an engine that consumes policies, that takes in attributes, and decides what can what can happen. So the PDP um, is the actual term um, in OPA. It's just called OPA. It's the OPA engine. So OPA Open Policy Agent. But as a whole, it's just called the PDP. Then there's this notion of the enforcement. The enforcement is the policy enforcement point. And the enforcement is going to be very different uh, depending on what it is you're controlling access to. It could be an API gateway. It could be a bit of code within an application. It could be a servlet filter. It could be a SQL rewriter if we're talking about databases. Um, it could be, um, if, if we're talking about um, Kubernetes, it could be um, something in the, um, in the control plane that will intercept um, uh, messages that, that go between different uh, different instances. So depending on what it is you want to control access to, the policy enforcement point form factor will be very different. There's, an, there's another component um, called the PIP, which is kind of my favorite one. It's the policy information point. And this is where, in a typical ABAC architecture, you have policies. And the policies state, you know, um, an employee can view a bank account if the um, the branch of the account is equal to the branch of the employee. Well, that's all fine and well, but the information that came in the question, the request, if you will, it only contained the user's identity. It didn't really contain the branch they belong to. So you have to be able to figure that information out. That's what the PIP is for. It connects to underlying systems, databases, REST endpoints, um, uh, other services that will provide you the missing information. Hey, give me Joe's branch. Give me account one, two, three's branch. These are, this is what the PIPs are for. 
that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. And it's good to have like the, a succinct explanation of this, especially some of the material in the industry about these components is, is fairly verbose, I would say. And, and it's good to kind of like bring it down to earth. Like the PDP, it's the thing that kind of like runs the policy and returns, hey, the decision, true or false, to simplify. PEP, it's, it takes the decision and decides what to do, right? It might, if it's a proxy, it might return uh, a 303 or a 403 or a 201 or wh whatever it should yep. happen. And, and you yep. might be running it from different places. Again, we, we have the actual like authoring point And again, there might be like a, a registry for policies or or some sort of place where you store them. Um, and then the PIP, and this is kind of like where, where it starts to get interesting because like this is what connects to kind of like the, the underlying systems. And, and if I think about that, I'm like, okay, so the, the policies kind of like might need to, to read from different places in, in my services, in my architecture, in order to kind of like make an authorization decision. Um, what are the challenges of, of that? Because I, I again, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more from, I come from the reliability distributed system side, and I'm like, if whenever I need to make a decision that involves state, I, I start to get paranoid. Yeah, there's actually two two major issues. The first one is you have to have the data, meaning that um, if you're going to be using branch, branch needs to exist. Um, and I remember this this one customer who were writing a policy about a legal guardian, as a matter of fact. It was a banking use case. And the policy was along the lines of, well, the employee can view the bank account. It was not about legal guardian. I'm sorry. It was about block listing. So the employee can view the bank account of a customer, except if the employee is on the block list for that customer, which is a, a really good policy, right? The thing is, they were not maintaining that attribute in any system. So the first thing is, if you're going to use an attribute in a policy, you better make sure that it's defined and maintained somewhere and that you have a process to maintain those values. Oftentimes, it's not an issue. But when you're implementing new scenarios, then it becomes an issue because you have to agree as to who will maintain that attribute, who will govern the attribute, who will update the attribute. The second aspect, the second issue speaks to what you were saying, Damien, which is, well, if you're going to be reading attribute values from PIPs, what about the performance? What about the reliability? What about the um, the state? Um, I think that's a bit of a non-issue. I think you have to design the architecture in a way that it does scale correctly, in a way that if you need to replicate the data in multiple places, that you do replicate the data in, in multiple places. I think if you go back to 2001, there was this sort of naive expectation that there would be one master database that would contain all the information that there would be one master pdp that would contain all the policies but that's that we, we know that's not true we know that we live in a very very distributed world um for performance reasons for uh, failover reasons and so if you want to be able to use pips you have to be able to distribute the data or cache the data to to make retrieval efficient and um error proof that makes sense yeah that, that's kind of like uh, and this is kind of like the, the interesting thing, which means, again, we, we, this is a, a good approach in terms of like extracting things from the core of your logic, getting you all of the separation of concerns, the, the ability to author and approve changes and, and get auditing separately. But it also was created in a context where most application architectures were um, two or three tier applications, right? Like, and you had the... the yeah. Yep. Some middleware, you had a centralized database, you could do all of, all of your joins there, and now we have these uh, 
largely distributed systems. We have microservices or service-oriented architectures, which, again, all of those might work differently. You have different data stores within a single architecture. Uh, so that why like, it starts to kind of like put an onus on the team to, to get to make sure that authorization is reliable, has this low latency, and you need to handle mm -hmm. a lot of those things around like replication and stuff. Um, what other things do you see like maybe that, that might be kind of like seen as like AVAC challenges? Like, again, since it's been around for like 20 years, where do you see that it could improve? I think that the single biggest challenge is a human challenge. It's, it's around the authoring, the policy governance, the policy certification, um, also the overall ownership. Do you do authorization? Do you do, you do enterprise authorization or do you do an authorization for a single application? Um, where do you draw the line between what should reside in application code versus what should reside in the authorization policies? What is that line between business authorization and business logic? These, these are the toughest nuts to crack. Be it open policy agent, be, be it that, be it something else. It's just a PP. It's a commodity. It's an engine, right? Um, you know, so much so that if you look at the plane industry, right, they build engines for the planes, but the, the planes, the cockpit rather, is the magic in the plane, or the comfort of the cabin is the magic in the plane. The, the, the engine is going to be bought from a company that does engines. It's a commodity, right? I'm, I'm sure engine companies might not agree with me, but you, you get the point, right? The engine is, is just commoditized. The enforcement yeah. can also be commoditized. From an authorization perspective, just grab any API gateway. It doesn't matter which one you use. Um, from, from a web app perspective, just grab any filter that works or, or whatever. You can commoditize the enforcement. The secret sauce, though, is really in, in the management of the policies, in the life cycle of the policies. And open policy agent is actually a really interesting example of that because the enforcement piece and the decision-making piece, they're, they're open source and freely available. What companies are competing for, the likes of Stura, the likes of build uh, security, so on and so forth, they're competing for the management piece. They're competing for the, the, the visibility, the reporting, the um, access review features on top of the enforcement, on top of the decision-making, on top of Rego to policy language. So that's the toughest nut to crack. Okay, and, and how do you, like, again, let's, uh, when, when I hear you talk about this, which you're both passionate about and very knowledgeable about, you, you've talked about SACML, and again, like, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's, again, it's XML. Uh, for, you, we talked about Alpha, it's, it's JSON. Uh, we talked about, again, yeah. now Rego, which I, it's not exactly this, because it's, it's not uh, an imperative programming language, but, like, it's inspired, I would say, by, by Go and, and the Kubernetes ecosystem, so it seems kind of like, again, as the ages had gone by and new things become kind of like hipster or cooler, um, new, new languages have come up. What are the differences mm -hmm. between those languages? Are, are there things that I can do with one that I can't with the other? So Zachwell and Alpha are equivalent. They're, they're just a different syntax. Like you said, Zachwell is XML. Um, Alpha is JSON-like. It's not quite JSON, right? It's, it's more like a mixture of it looks a little like C-sharp slash JSON, if you will. So it's this notation that developers are familiar with. Um, Rego is YAML-like, if I remember correctly, and it's based on data log. Um, the, the biggest differences between Alpha and Zachwell on the one hand and Rego on the other is that Alpha and Zachwell have a hierarchy and a structure, and they have this notion of combining algorithms, which 
Um, Rigo does not have. Rigo is more a bit more like a flat list of, of rules and policies for better or for worse. So it's it's a slightly different style of um, policy writing. Overall, uh, oh, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Was, uh, they're more or less equivalent. Overall, there's there's things I'm more familiar with um, in, in Alpha and Zachwell that I, that I would be able to express more easily, like negative policies, which, which I believe you can do in Rigo, which uh, you, you could, of course, do in Alpha and Zachwell very easily. There's the notion of obligations and advice that you can do in in, um, in Alpha and Zachwell, which are statements that you can return with a decision. Um, there's also, in Alpha and Zachwell, there's a clean separation between policy and the attribute manipulation or attribute retrieval. So policy in Alpha and Zachwell is just a comparison of attributes uh, with one another or with values. In Rigo, in the policy can be that, but it can also be um, changing the value that came in, normalizing the value that came in, or it can be fetching an attribute from somewhere else. That, to me, is kind of mixing what the policy should do. Um, and maybe that's my biased view because I come from the Zachwell world and I'm not familiar enough with Open Policy Agent yet in Rigo. But um, it looks like Rigo is mixing different things. Um, the policy, the attribute retrieval, the attribute manipulation, and this should be separate because ultimately the policy should be something that you can give business owners, business stakeholders. This should be as untechnical as possible. Okay, that's that's a, a good uh, good insight. We, we, I would I would like at some point to get uh, like some of the creators and authors from this uh, different uh, languages kind of like over to share kind of like a bit about the, their philosophy when when designing these and, and like what, what were they thinking about? What were the trade offs? So I think that might make an, an interesting conversation in the future. Hopefully, I'll, yeah. I'll get a few of them to to join. Um, now, what, one of the things that's kind of like out there, it, it got into like a couple of posts at, at Hacker News because companies like uh, Airbnb and Carta talked about it. There's an open source implementation of it. It's, it's like the notion of like this Google Sansibar type type of system. Um, what are you familiar with it, and, and what have you seen about it that might or might not be interesting for authorization scenarios? Yeah, so I'm actually familiar. Um, um, only a little bit about it, and actually, thanks to you, um, Damien, for bringing it up and to my attention. My understanding of Zanzibar is that it still is access control list based, and that the main challenge that that Google was trying to address was the ability to very quickly recalculate access control lists and assign them to objects in, in Google Drive or, or anything that is driven by Google, so YouTube and, and all the other Google services. So, I think the requirement with Zanzibar was more about the efficiency with which you could calculate, recalculate um, access control lists and assign them to the different objects in a very highly distributed world. ABAC and Zachmole and Alpha and, and even Migo to some extent, they're more about fine-grained authorization in a policy-driven world. Yes, Zenzibar is fine-grained. There's no doubt about that because you can do very specific assignment of a given item to a given user. So it's, it doesn't get more fine-grained than that. But it's still access control list based. It's very much based on the need that Google has of you know a very highly distributed system of Google Docs, Google Drive, Google Slides, YouTube, and all the other um, services that Google provides. So I think Zenzibar is interesting in the sense that um, they started from a very specific problem statement which was we have all these services and we have all this data in those services that we potentially need to share with, with, with customers and with people or that customers need to be able to share with customers. 
So how do we do? How do we go about doing that in a highly efficient way? AVAC started from hmm, there's an interesting challenge, which is authorization. Oh, by the way, identity and, and federation that's been handled by SAML. So how could we tackle authorization in the broadest possible sense? And that's how they came up, or how we came up at Oasis with with um, Zach Bull and later Alpha. Yeah, and, and this is kind of like, what, again, I, I've been again, researching and, and, and doing a lot of work on the area and, and working on, on different implementations, reading papers, and it's like, there's kind of like this trade-off between like the, the flexibility like uh, that's, that, that you get from most or, or, or all policy-based implementations where like, you, know, you, you can express almost anything you want, but this notion of like, you had to feed state into the, the policy engine in order to make a decision. Uh, whereas, like the the main difference with the the Sansibar like approach, and there's also another paper from uh, Facebook called uh, Tau. It's around how can we kind of like do more of like the map reduce model, where we we move the ability to compute these permissions close to the data, right? So like the, they mm -hmm. compute a way in which you say, hey, this is how my ACL, this is how my my permission, my authorization model works. Push it close to the data. And then that allows them to both compute resolutions faster and who should have access to what. But at the same time, uh, because of, again, because they're Google, because they're kind of like co-locating with their clients, they get this kind of like very quick latency for authorization decisions. That is what they look for. So it's kind of like that balance of like, how much flexibility do you need uh, versus how much do you want to worry about the, like the data aspects of authorization? Right. Um, so, like, what would you kind of like? We're, we're at the hour mark, and, and this has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciate again, like, the topic, but also like the historical context about this. Let's say someone was starting today, and and, and maybe it's a it's a new startup, maybe it's a, it's a SaaS business, maybe it's a new system. What would you recommend to them? How should they start, and how should they think about implementing authorization? So. Or implementing authorization as they're going to be selling it as a vendor, or implementing authorization as they're building the next Airbnb and they want to tackle authorization. Let's let's say they are the next Airbnb and they want to tackle authorization. Yes. Yeah. Rule number one: don't do it yourself. <laughs> I think uh, you know, much like you should not do authentication yourself, you should not do encryption yourself, you should not do logging yourself. You should clearly not do authorization yourself. I think I think you really want to write your requirements down in plain old English. You also want to look at the owners of those requirements. Um, if it's more in the infrastructure space and more about developer efficiency in, in, in the realm of Kubernetes and, and, and Docker, um, then you look at technologies that live within that realm. So maybe open policy agent, maybe something else. If it's more in the, the business uh, world or in the API world, business-focused API world, then maybe you look at technologies in those space. So it could be... It could, it could be open policy agent again. It could very well be um, something like Alpha and Zachmol. But you want to you want to quantify. You want to clearly identify, articulate your requirements, and then quantify them. What I mean by that is, oftentimes we'll, I've had customers say, "Oh, we need something that is super performant." What does it mean to be super performant? You know, are you talking about millisecond, microsecond, ten milliseconds? What's the, what's the order of magnitude? Um, and then when customers say, "Oh, we need something that's super fine grained," well. What do you mean with super fine grain? Can you give me a couple examples of, of authorization requirements? So I would start with that. I would start with defining, and I guess it's a very planned, generic piece of advice, but defining your requirements, defining your business requirements, defining your authorization requirements, and see where that takes you. Um, there is also a lot of 
good literature now um, by different analyst firms, the likes of Coopinger Cole, who've written extensively on dynamic authorization management, which is what they call ABAC, or Gartner, or even if you go to, um, you know, shameless plug, if you go to Identiverse um, and go check out my talk, um, there's lots of good resources in there um, that point to other sites, other vendors, other technologies as, as a good way to get started. Yeah, and, and so yeah, we'll we'll be adding a link to the to the talk in the in the resources when we when we upload the recording. Uh, so it it will be available, and, and it's, again, it's, we talk about a lot of these things, but uh, you should go watch the recording as well. And and I really like the the advice because it's again, it's it's always like oriented around use cases. I know uh, Vittorio is listening, and again, another person that's always saying, "Hey, let's start with the use case, right? What are we trying to do? Let's not pick a solution before we know exactly what we're looking for." Because again, there are lots of things out there, but at the same time, and at least this has been my experience working on, on these topics, a lot of companies that are looking at these problems, uh, they, they, they are maybe coming from uh, an RBAC world and, and they're starting to think more fine-grained, more relationship-based or more uh, complete like ABAC. And it takes a bit to realize kind of like the power of, of what you're getting into and stop thinking just in terms of roles. So it's it's also a challenge from that perspective. It is absolutely. You have to you have to start thinking in terms of plain old English, actually. Um, and, and I've had a lot of customers when they start the ABAC journey, they still think in terms of roles and permissions and groups. And that's, that's actually let go, let go of roles, let go of groups, and just think in plain old English because it's so much simpler. Yes, you will need you will need roles, you will need groups. But it's not the end of it. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I, again, I, I do like the, the plain old English advice. This is, again, how I usually start my conversations. Like, okay, why should this user have access to this thing over there? Explain it to me using words that do not include the word role. Yep. Good. Um, so again, like, thanks, thanks a lot, David. Again, we're we're at the hour mark. I really appreciate your time. This this has been great. Um, so for everyone listening, My we'll, be, uh, we'll be uploading the recording to YouTube, making it available on Twitter, on our Discord as well, uh, at Zero Lab Discord. And we are still to confirm the next conversation. We're we're still kind of like uh, working with a couple of uh, people that might be participating as guests as soon. As we know, uh, who it will be, uh, we'll be announcing it on Twitter, on my account, and also on the uh, Odd Zero Labs account. Hopefully, you all enjoy this. And again, thanks a lot, David, for being here. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye, everyone.